0: This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by NanoString. Here at NanoString, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. I'm really excited for this episode. My guests today are Dr. Eugenia Ong and Dr. Chan Kwan Rong. Dr. Ong is a senior research fellow at Duke NUS. Dr. Chan is a Principal Researcher also at Duke NUS. Their work mainly revolves around virology and vaccine development, and we talk about what goes into the discovery of a vaccine and how the landscape has changed since the COVID-19 pandemic. So Eugenia and Quanrong, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting us.
1: Thanks, Jonathan.
0: Before we dive in, can I know both of your journeys into research and particularly the study of viruses?
2: Thanks for asking. So I initially started out working with Prof. Wee, looking at how the epidemiology of dengue. But as with time, we realized that just studying uh, epidemiology wasn't sufficient. So we decided that we wanted uh, to develop a dengue vaccine in the lab so that we can actually influence more people and that we will hopefully be able to eradicate the disease. So that was where my journey started, where I started to look at uh, molecular mechanisms related to severe dengue. As most of us already know, the second infection for dengue is usually more severe than the first. But at that time when I was uh, starting out, we didn't know what, what was the molecular mechanism behind. So during my PhD, we uncovered the major receptors that were important for antibody-dependent enhancement. And that also consequently uh, led to a clinical trial that I was involved in during my postdoc years. And since then, I've been analyzing all of the human data. And with um, the human data, because it's very heterogeneous, so then that actually brought forward for me to learn more bioinformatics. And this is currently where I am where I'm actually at the interface between uh, wet lab research as well as uh, bioinformatics,
1: Yeah, I must say like my journey kind of mirrors the journey that KR took as well in the sense that, you know, we come from the same lab. So Prabhu is also my mentor. He's been my mentor since I was final year undergraduate research done in his lab. And... I think he really pushed me to getting my PhD done. And it was kind of serendipitous because Duke U.S. was starting their first cohort for PhD student intake. And so I was very fortunate to be part of that cohort and, you know, really getting into what Guan Rong mentioned just now, the molecular mechanisms behind antibody dependent enhancement and how that antibody enhance infection, what does that actually do in a cell, right? How does that change the way cell signaling happens and how that affects, you know, viral replication and really like ultimately figure out the molecular determinants that could underlie the enhanced infection that we sometimes see in dengue patients that are having a second infection, often with a different serotype. Then from there, you know, my postdoctoral years, a lot of my doctoral thesis work that was purely at the bench. And for me, I was interested a little bit more in getting into the drug discovery and development pipeline. I think what was very helpful was during my postdoc years, I had the opportunity to first be based at ASTAR at the Experimental Therapeutic Centre, where I worked on a preclinical non-human primate model for dengue infection. And at that time, we were looking at a anti-dengue monoclonal anybody as a biologic candidate and after that I think timing was important as well so right at that time I think probably he was thinking of starting the lab that I'm in right now the via research and experimental medicine center at SingHealth UCanUS and so I didn't hesitate and I jumped at the opportunity to join Viramix because at Viramix now we are focused on very much the human clinical trials portion so I think I've had a nice background where I've had the experience at the bench and then with preclinical models and now with first-in-human clinical trials. It's been a really incredible journey getting to know, you know, like all the facets behind the drug discovery and development pipeline.
0: I think for a wrong, it must have really felt extremely rewarding because at the start of your PhD, you were mentioning that you were understanding the epidemiology of dengue, but then it ended up being like a preclinical trial for a drug, right? For the non-Singaporean listeners of the podcast, could you describe Duke NUS as an institution and Veramix's position in Duke NUS?
2: So right now I'm working as a principal research scientist in uh, Duke NUS uh, Medical School. So Duke NUS Medical School is actually a home for students as well as the researchers who are really interested to look at translational medicine. So trying to look at solutions to solve medical problems that we face in the hospitals which is why we are also situated right behind the Singapore General Hospital, where we actually collaborate a lot with clinicians as well in terms of research. And within the school itself, we also train students to get them ready to really go into the clinic so that they become doctors in the future. And also if there are individuals who are interested in both research as well as both clinical research as well, then they might also be interested to go into the what we call the MD-PhD program where students will be exposed to both clinical as well as the research uh, over at Duke NUS itself. So so it's actually an entity where we train both scientists as well as clinicians or clinician scientists uh, who are interested to pursue their passion further.
1: To follow up on what KR has already mentioned on Duke NUS, so Viramix was actually started as a lab in 2017 and that was right off the bat of the Zika epidemic and that was when we had a lot of Zika cases in both the Americas as well as in the Pacific Islands and we know that the vaccine development pipeline, sometimes that just cannot keep up with the explosive nature of how some of these emerging infectious diseases can occur. And the question was, are we able to you know, come up with some sort of, of a workflow that enables us to better tackle these sorts of infectious diseases, come up with the drugs and vaccines that are going to be very needed in parts of the world where these epidemics are occurring. And so Viramix, as an entity, we are situated actually between SingHealth and Duke and US, which puts us in a very ideal position to benefit both from the science that happens at the bench and allow us to translate that science into vaccines or new drugs that are going to potentially benefit patients as well as our general public. And the whole idea behind this is to be able to develop molecular tools that can you know, help us to get a sense of are there any biomarkers at a molecular level that can actually allow us to interrogate safety and efficacy of some of these new vaccines as well as therapeutic candidates so that these biomarkers could serve as a readout for the effectiveness of how a trial is progressing, the safety of a candidate, and hopefully that helps to shorten the timeline for the licensure of these new drugs and therapeutics.
0: Just to reiterate the point, from your perspective, how important is it to have validated biomarkers?
1: Well, I think it's critical for us to have validated biomarkers because, number one, trials can be heterogeneous. And that's really because you have trials being done in different parts of the world. Samples are being processed in labs, you know, spread out across multiple countries. As you see with multiple, you know, phase three studies where it tends to be multi multicenter trials, And so for a biomarker to be effectively deployed, I really think that it needs to be well validated. And really the validation process needs to be a robust one because you want to be able to make sure that once you have a biomarker or a signature, that can be uh, suitably reproduced and that can give you a sense of, for example, prediction, things like disease severity, how efficacious a antiviral treatment or vaccine is going to turn out. And so I think that highlights the importance.
2: And probably one more thing is that, for example, in the COVID-19 pandemic, when we see a lot of cases, the doctors are more equipped to be able to predict severity of the disease. For example, when COVID uh, starts to die down, then the prediction for severity by doctor judgment um, could be biased. And also that the doctors may not see enough of these patients to be able to call whether a patient will have severe disease or not. So having a good uh, validated biomarker will help us inform the doctors to know whether an individual may progress to severe disease or not, so that it's easier to triage and also uh, easier to when to intervene as well. Is it also important in the
0: sense that the biomarker might be highly expressed for high severity, but then the symptoms remain nascent enough that doctors don't red flag it.
2: Yeah, so that, that is absolutely possible. And especially when the disease is not a pandemic, for example, then the doctors may not have the experience right, to fully uh, be able to predict whether an individual will progress to severe disease. And that is very critical, especially for the elderly as well, because uh, they are the ones who have the risk of a severe COVID that is potentially fatal. Could you walk me through the development of an antiviral drug or a vaccine?
1: Yeah, for sure. So actually the development process, I would say there are similar themes within the entire development process. So I think what's really critical in the first place is having a good target. So, well, when you have an antiviral, then it's whether or not you can, you know, make sure that the target is well validated and you know exactly, for example, where the antiviral is working on, what potentially is the mechanism of action. Because When it's more well-characterized, I do think that your subsequent steps are going to be a lot easier to control for as well in terms of the upcoming preclinical in vivo models that you might have to look at an antiviral, look at its efficacy in, for example, resolving viremia in the case of dengue or Zika, for example. And also definitely will come in handy later on when you proceed to, for example, if you have good preclinical data, then you might start thinking of first-in-man clinical trials. And if you have a well-characterized target, well-validated, then it's going to be a lot more straightforward in terms of thinking of what is the primary endpoint for this clinical trial. Because a lot of times, I think with clinical trials, if you have an antiviral that does not meet your primary endpoint, then it's really hard to revive the target after that.
0: Something that I was just thinking about was when you said having a good target and getting that validated and actually like what kind of cells it's working on, I would suppose. That's almost like a data analysis argument where like garbage in, garbage out, right? Exactly
2: that. And especially um, a lot of times where we look at in vitro models, uh, trying to look at host response, whether it's uh, related to vaccines or drugs. Uh, sometimes we really don't know whether this can immediately translate into humans, right? or uh, sometimes we move to animal models but in a lot of times the uh, animal models may not uh, fully uh, represent what a human uh, individual would experience so in in a way i think um the development of the uh, antiviral drug as well as uh, vaccines is it very important to assess uh, both uh, safety and its efficacy especially during the early uh, phase and then uh, hopefully um have early signatures, like for for example, molecular signatures that can quickly allow us to down select these uh, potential candidates uh, so that we can bring forth the most promising uh, candidates as quick as possible into the market where the pandemic would have the most damage.
0: I think thus far there haven't been any vaccines available for fly viruses with regards to Zika, dengue. Can I understand why that's the case or what you feel is the biggest roadblock to that?
2: Flavie viruses are complex in the sense that because, especially for dengue, there is like four dengue serotypes. So what happens if we have four serotypes is that only uh, neutralizing antibodies can recognize one kind of serotype, but not to the other three, for example. But I think what makes things really complicated is the potential of this risk for developing uh, antibody-dependent enhancement, which which means that if the vaccine is not able to elicit sufficient immune response, there is a potential that the vaccine may predispose one to more severe disease when contacted with the virus or the wild-type virus. So in that sense, it's quite complicated because you need basically a vaccine that can fully protect against all four types of virus and with good efficacy so that you can minimize the risk of a severe disease when uh, exposed to a wild-type infection. As for Zika, this is also difficult because Zika just came and disappeared really quickly. So in a way, it was difficult to assess uh, vaccine or therapeutic efficacy really quickly, especially we, when we don't have disease uh, manifestations when the Zika pandemic died down. So because of these difficulties of uh, not having enough cases as well as uh, the potential risk of a severe disease, uh, this makes the development more complicated as compared to other viruses.
1: But there is actually one very effective vaccine for flaviviruses and that's for yellow fever virus. So the yellow fever vaccine or YF-Santin-D is one of the most successful life attenuated vaccines developed. And I think, you know, in studies that have been done, once you have someone receiving the YF-Santin-D vaccine, that protective immunity can last for decades. And that has been shown, you know, in multiple papers in terms of, you know, memory, B cell, as well as T cell responses. So, you know, if you you were to be exposed to the yellow fever virus, you're going to be well protected. And- Actually, that dovetails nicely with what our lab has been trying to do over the years, which is make use of the YF-Santin-D vaccine as a, well, model virus, if you would like, or model vaccine to try and understand what happens at a molecular level. You know, like what are the molecular signatures that we see with YF-Santin-D and are these signatures going to be reproduced or can we see these robustly across multiple vaccine types? And if so, then is there, you know, a generalized signature among vaccines that, Is going to tell us whether or not a vaccine is going to be safe, whether it's going to be effective.
0: Something that popped into my mind when you were mentioning the four different serotypes of dengue, what would be the adverse effects were you to put neutralizing antibodies for the wrong serotype?
2: There are two kinds of antibodies related to um, dengue virus. So one is a serotype specific, which is very highly neutralizing. And there is uh, also what, what we call cross-neutralizing antibody, which cross-reacts with, against all four serotypes of uh, viruses. So currently, it's uh, more documented that the serotype-specific antibodies are the neutralizing antibodies, and this is why vaccines are trying to elicit this kind of responses, to elicit a very good serotype-specific responses, basically to all four serotypes. The cross-reactive antibodies, on the other hand, are mostly associated with uh, increased risk of uh, severe disease, when present in sub-neutralizing levels. And that is because although they bind to the virus, but they don't bind with uh, enough ability and affinity. And what happens is that these antibodies may not be sufficient enough to be able to neutralize the virus. So there is some risk in that aspect if you elicit cross-reactive antibodies, especially at levels that are not high enough. So that's why... In terms of vaccine development, uh, we often try to make sure that the vaccine uh, elicits uh, sufficient quantities of uh, serotype-specific antibodies.
1: To add on what we've learned so far from COVID, and I think what we are trying to also put into process in terms of us, you know, thinking of what makes a good vaccine is T-cell responses. Because I think those T-cell responses in general, I feel like the whole T-cell mediated immunity that really came to the foreground with COVID-19 and the types of immunity that we are now seeing from patients who are recovered from COVID-19. And we know that T-cell responses do last for a fairly long time. There are also memory responses, both for B-cells and T-cells. So both our antibody as well as T-cell response Responses. I think there are groups that are now looking at T cell responses for flaviviruses viruses as well, including dengue. And I have a feeling that being able to have characterized the types of T cell responses that we are getting from vaccines would be a good idea of also gauging how long that protective immunity is going to last for.
0: Speaking about COVID, how has the mRNA vaccine effort changed the trajectory of discovery
2: and treatment? For sure, COVID-19 uh, <laughs> accelerated a lot of uh, developments that was never achieved before. For example, the covid mRNA vaccine, it was uh, developed within a less than a year, which was a record speed, right? So actually, what this experience clearly shows is that if sufficient resources and collaboration and integration uh, is actually uh, put in place, it is highly possible that academia and industry can come together to actually uh, fight this one common goal, which is really to eradicate the disease. Although we are still far from eradication, I think uh, it is uh, well managed in most countries right now. And I think uh, it's a remarkable achievement. So I think by integrating a lot of the omics platforms, whether it's bioinformatics, whether it's characterising host response or adaptive clinical trials to accelerate clinical development. All of these uh, are actually executed uh, quite well during the COVID pandemic and that allowed us to really uh, accelerate whether it's vaccines or drugs uh, that can be readily employed uh, when a pandemic really uh, matters the most.
1: And I think I also have something to add, which is that it took us less than a year to come up with a very effective and safe vaccine for COVID-19 in terms of the mRNA vaccines. But that technology that was used to develop mRNA vaccines, that has actually been around for, I would say, more than a decade. Another important point is that we need to invest still in our basic science, because if that investment hadn't been made into the science surrounding, for example, how do you get an mRNA delivered? How do you ensure that it's going to where it's needed? How do you come up with, you know, the encapsulating technology for how do you encapsulate the mRNA in a lipid nanoparticle? Then this vaccine would not have been possible.
0: Can I understand how the encounter sits in the services that you currently provide?
1: So we've had the encounter in our lab actually since when the lab started. Because I was telling you about how Viramix, um, when we started... The whole idea was to be able to develop this molecular toolbox for coming up with correlates that could tell us something about safety and efficacy for new vaccines and therapeutic candidates. And that would eventually allow us to, for example, down select, you know, the safest as well as potentially the most effective candidate and move that into the next phase of clinical testing. And so we really, we really employed encounter technology initially to both assess the host response after vaccination or after infection, or for example, after a therapeutic intervention to see how that intervention actually modulates the host response. And in that way, we were hoping to, to develop biomarkers as well as to validate them. And I think it really complements some of the other services that we now offer as well, which is looking at combining both encounter profiling as well as other profiling readouts to give us a more holistic picture of what's happening in terms of host response and whether or not some of these targets we can later you know, develop into a biomarker signature for assessing safety and efficacy.
0: You mentioned host response, but are there any other panels that have been useful for Viramix?
1: We actually started with the human immunology panel, and that has been the main workhorse in our lab. We have tried the host response panels as well, but I would say like the immunology panel is something that we have used pretty extensively across multiple clinical studies that we've worked on. We've also used the mouse and non-human primate panels as well, and those were to look at changes in the mouse and NHP models after infection and vaccination.
0: I recall at your lab retreat, you were really excited for the presentation on spatial biology. Can I ask how you foresee spatial transcriptomics and proteomics changing the way that you understand host response?
2: So currently most of our studies and also with uh, everyone else in the world, uh, we are mostly looking at peripheral blood. So that means basically taking a blood sample from subjects and looking at host response. I mean, the more sophisticated lab also includes uh, single cell technology as well to try to elucidate mm. what are the uh, individual cell subsets uh, they are involved and in, what they are doing. But I think facial transcriptomics could be the next wave, particularly because what we know clearly not everything happens in the blood. There is also trafficking of immune cells into specialized uh, tissues as well as very specialized niches that are clearly uh, worth uh, investigating. So at the forefront, I think spatial transcriptomics has been increasingly applied to animal models. So uh, trying to look at how immune cells are trafficking and uh, in response, whether it is to infection or is it vaccination? But I think uh, we've, better medical technology, I suspect uh, some of these uh, technologies could be transferred to look at uh, human tissues as well see how immune responses are triggered and whether um, there are tissue specific signatures uh, that are possibly uh, worth uh, looking at and eventually uh, can even be a biomarker to assess the severity of disease in some more specialized cases.
0: In the case of preclinical or rather animal models, it's more understanding pre-treatment and post-treatment. So then to see where the virus is affecting cells within the solid tissue of an animal model and then post-vaccination or the long-lasting effects of that infection,
2: correct? Yeah, but I think the spatial transcriptomics will likely share more insights in terms of uh, infection, uh, because the changes in tissues and immune cells are likely to be more. If we talk about Zika virus, for example, right, where we know that the tropism is really into the brain and also could be across the endothelial cells. So, so that's where a spatial transcriptomics could be insightful to look at what is really happening at the interface, right, between blood and, for example, the immune privilege, such as uh, the brain. And I think, um, With these spatial mastectomies, you can actually look at what the cells are doing and how they are reacting to to infection, for example.
0: Karen, could we talk a bit about bioinformatics? And can I understand how you manipulate these multiomic data sets
2: for vaccine development or viral understanding? In our lab, we actually employ uh, tools that can be used, whether it's non-bioinformaticians or bioinformaticians. So... Clearly, our goal is really to have a very integrated pipeline where we can integrate whether it's proteomics, transcriptomics, or metabolomics into a single platform. And we realized that increasingly interpreting the data is actually the bottleneck in most of our analysis. Right now, the technology is so advanced, including nanoscreen, including rna seq. The speed at which the data is generated is at amazing speed, but really the bottleneck is really to try to uncover what is really happening and what are the immune response or the host response that matters the most. So this is where bioinformatics uh, really comes in handy, where we try to integrate host responses as well as virus uh, sequences as well as a panel of uh, different omics uh, technologies are trying to understand how these different factors come into play together. It's not easy because human responses is also highly heterogeneous because of different genetic backgrounds, different environmental backgrounds. So different individuals will uh, react differently. So that's where bioinformatics will try to potentially stratify the data to try to understand uh, what we can learn from the data and also be able to even leverage on some of this heterogeneity to understand why some people respond to the vaccine better, while others uh, respond less. So this is where bioinformatics uh, will come out with a workflow that allows users to really um, have a systematic pipeline to really look at their omics data and ultimately to be able to make sense of the data, to be able to make informed decisions of whether it's uh, in the clinics or whether in, in uh, preclinical development.
0: Where do you see the field trending towards in say the next five to 10 years?
2: So I project in the next 5 to 10 years, there will be clearly more technologies being developed And a lot of these uh, technologies will likely be very high throughput. So I suspect in the five to 10 years from now, data science will be emerging as uh, one of the golden era to try to really understand how this uh, data actually uh, associated with each other and how the different data sets can actually uh, mean to us. So I think there will be a lot of effort in trying to streamline uh, many of these uh, bioinformatic processes to try to make sense of a lot of the big data that will be generated whether it's from clinicians or whether it's from a high-throughput in the area of uh, science. So I think the challenge in the next five to ten years will be really to try to understand what data really means.
1: For me personally, in the next five to ten years, following up on what Kwan Rong mentioned on the growing importance of bioinformatics and robust data processing pipelines is that hopefully we can and we should be able to respond to pandemics faster. We should be able to develop antivirals, vaccines faster than it used to take us. And in the event that we do have a disease X that happens within the next 5 to 10 years, I'm hoping we can respond with twice the speed as what happened with COVID-19 and I think that would really put to test the high-throughput technologies that we now have at our disposal as well as the bioinformatics pipelines that we have in disentangling some of that information to really cut to where the important mediators are in terms of safety and efficacy.
0: So thank you, Eugenia and Quanrong, for coming onto the podcast and shedding light on the work that you're doing in viruses and telling us how the data is extremely important, or rather processing the data tells us what is really important in terms of host response and how that is driving development for vaccines. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having us on.
2: Thank you very much. <laughs> I really enjoy myself too. Thank you
0: for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.